0: Welcome back to The Real News Network, and welcome back to Reality Asserts Itself. This is the beginning of a new series of interviews about the global economy and the state thereof. We're told we are in a recovery, sort of, but how real is it? And if it isn't that real, and in fact it won't be long before there's another meltdown, how come there's so little discussion about it and it seems so little being done to prevent or mitigate it? Now joining us to talk about all of these issues is an economist that we're fans of and have interviewed many times on The Real News Network, Dr. Heiner Flasbeck, who for the first time joins us in the studio. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So Heiner was, until recently, the director of the Division on Globalization and Development Strategies at UNCTAD, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. And after, from 2003 to 2012, he was the director of the Division on Globalization and Development Strategies. Since then, he's now director of Flasbeck Economics, a consultancy for global macroeconomic questions. And you can find that at flasbeck economicsde Before that, Heiner was employed at the German Council of Economic Experts in Wiesbaden between 76 and 80, followed by the Federal Ministry of Economics in Bonn until January 86. Chief macroeconomist in the German Institute for Economic Research in Berlin between 88 and 98. State Secretary, which is a vice minister, from October 98 to 99 at the Federal Ministry of Finance and Bonn, and responsible for international affairs at the U and the IMF. A rather illustrious career. And one where you have been not quite on the same page as many of the places you worked at.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, uh, I worked at a number of places, and I was always a bit the odd man out or the <laughs> the one who had a critical view on uh, the mainstream uh, economics and uh, but nevertheless uh, i think um, in in all these different places there were uh, still a discussion there was an open discussion about uh, different uh, opinions dif- different approaches to economics and um, even up to into the UN and in UNCTAD we had this open discussion. Only at the very end, uh, when we're approaching 2012, even after the crisis, then the climate got uh, much more, much more militant, so to say, and uh, the people were really trying to prevent UNCTAD from thinking uh, critically and to, be, to give a second opinion to the global affairs. So,
0: because UNCTAD took a position quite you could say, opposed to prevailing economic theory, which is there needs to be a profit-led recovery and trickle-down economics, more or less, and, and kind of classical uh, economic fundamentalism, some people call it.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. We, we really had, uh, it was our, our approach, our mandate, even given from all the countries of the world. So UNCTAD is a conference, and that is why it got a mandate from uh, all countries that are members of the UN. And the mandate said we should be critical, we should be critical towards the mainstream, we should give second opinion. But this was, this was not taken uh, well by the Group B, what we call Group B, which is the industrialized countries. And they tried to prevent that. They tr- tried to prevent the second opinion, the only one opinion that was there outside the IMF and, and the Washington institutions. So this is really a funny situation that in, in, in a world on, on macroeconomics, you should not have two opinions in this world. You should and, only and, have and one. And you
0: were calling for things like higher wages, much Absolutely. more serious curbs on speculation and such. Right, all these things, and uh,
1: I think uh, looking back with hindsight, I can say we were right. We're right on all these things, and uh, the fact that we're not going out of the recession or stagnation, and that we're going into deflation now in Europe, and that we have all these problems uh, uh, overcoming overcoming the crisis, the the. The uh, process after 2008 to overcome uh, this stagnation and uh, recession, this shows that something fundamentally is wrong in in capitalism today. And this, uh, but this is not, uh, people are not willing to accept it and people are not willing to look at it uh, seriously.
0: Okay. In the course of this series, we are going to try to look at this seriously, but before we do that, and as people at home know, usually on Reality Asserts Itself, we start with some personal biographical information. So we're going to do that with you, and then, and then we'll, in the subsequent uh, segments, we're going to kind of dig into these issues. Okay. So you're born in West Germany in 1950. And uh, this is, uh, one could say, almost ground zero for the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, this just the f, you know five years after the uh, end of World War II. Uh, during, give us a sense of what growing up is like, and what did it look like? Well, what was the, what was the kind of vibe of the time?
1: Yeah, yeah I can give uh, some uh, uh, ideas about the region where I'm coming from, and many Americans know it. Many Americans know Baumholder. Baumholder is a very famous place where many uh, American soldiers were. Uh, after the war, you, everybody knows, even more people know Rammstein. Ramstein is 30 kilometers from my hometown. So I was uh, growing up very much in an Americanized, an Americanized society, so to say. And American soldiers were a normal part of our life uh, in, in my youth. And uh, so so we got very much associated to, to the American style of life. Uh, we went to uh, shops uh, like the, what was it, the... No, I don't remember exactly what it was. (laughs) The the, The shops that sold for the soldiers. The shops that sold for the soldiers. We were invited there to go there to to buy things, and uh, we went into clubs where uh, American soldiers mainly
0: uh, went. So that, uh, how, did, how did that feel as you grew up? Because I know I was there in uh, the eight, 1980s and, mm-hmm. and even then it felt almost like an occupied country. Like everywhere I went there were American troop carriers going yeah, places yeah. back and forth. Yeah,
1: we were an occupied country in a way so Germany was not sovereign. Maybe some people say it's today not, not yet sovereign but uh, at that time it was clearly uh, uh, a, a world dominated by the by the us and the whole system that we had the whole economic system which we consider to be the normal thing I maybe mean, the economic miracle all over the world not only in germany but everywhere uh was considered to be the normal thing for capitalism for a market economy but uh, today we know that's not true
0: but at the time it looked it would be growth forever
1: yeah it looked as it would be the absolute super stable system uh, the bread and wood system but nobody had uh the idea that it was really created uh, out of the desperate, uh, the desperation uh, after the Second World War, under con- conditions that will never come back, uh, and under under the, the uh, spiritual leadership of uh, uh, one person uh, who did it, who designed it, namely John Menzies Keynes. Uh, he was the one who was who gave the direction. Even if not all his ideas were, were realized in the end, but he gave the direction. And this was really a super stable system for 20 years. And then it was overcome by the so-called uh, neoclassical counter-revolution, or monetarist counter-revolution, uh, with the stupid idea that uh, uh, to regain, sort of say, the market power, to bring the market power back and, and to drive back the state would would solve uh, all problems. We, we now know it's not true. It's not true at all.
0: So getting back to your personal story, and then we're gonna dig into some of these issues. Um, as I say, it's just a few years after the war. And in terms of your own thinking, your own identity, your own political sense, um, how, how, did, how was it to grow up a young, a young German after, I mean, Germany was had so isolated, you, you grow up knowing about, you know, concentration camps and Hitler and fascism. Mm-hmm. What was the politics in your household when you grew up and, 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 your, and your formation politically?
1: Well, personally, I have to say, I, I, fortunately, I grew up in a household where my father was rather old. Uh, going into the Second World War, he was not a soldier. In the Second World War, he was a soldier. Over in the First World War, so he was very critical towards Hitler and the whole regime. And so, I grew up with this critical sense. Uh, and we discussed very much uh, this question and uh, uh, always in a critical tone. And. Uh, that is why I, I started my political thinking in the mid of the sixties or so.
0: Was he a man on the left? Was, was very, no, no.
1: He was yeah. not. He was. He, was uh, he had a small company. He had. Uh, he was uh, on his own. He was self-employed, so to say. Uh, uh, so no, no. He was not on the left, but he was, had a critical sense. He, he had a critical approach to everything, uh, whatever it was, sports and politics. He had a critical approach, and maybe th- that is something that I inherited uh, from him and. Uh, when I started political thinking in the 60s, then uh, we were m- very much on, the, qu- the, the question was uh, Vietnam. Oh, Vietnam was the great question. Nevertheless, I went to German military, and uh, but nevertheless, I, I thought very much about these questions, and uh, I came to the conclusion that my... Americanization, so to say, of the first years uh, was not uh, the whole world, and I had to uh, distance myself from that uh, also to find my own way and find, as a German, it was really not simple uh, to find a way and to... Uh, accept what has happened in German history, uh, and uh, nevertheless go forward, looking ahead uh, and into what what would come and change the,
0: change things. Uh, perhaps even more than World War II, I would have think what would have shaped a lot of your political thinking is what I said earlier. Uh, Germany was like ground zero for the Cold War. This was you know East versus West Germany. This was capitalism squaring yeah. off against Soviet communism or socialism. Yeah. And and as you said earlier, it's like capitalism looked like it would never stop growing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did you grow up thinking that the Soviet Union was the, the villain of the peace?
1: Not the villain of the peace, but uh, a misguided economic model. That was clearly my idea. Uh, I thought planned economy doesn't work, and it doesn't work. We know that it doesn't work, uh, in a way at least they tried it uh, for a couple of decades. Uh, so uh, we thought, uh, really, when I, when I started my studies at the beginning of the 70s, it was absolutely clear. Uh, that we, we would continue with that super-stable system, we, we, with a system that would be absolutely superior to uh, any, any other form of uh, uh, government-driven uh, driven system. So I, in the first years of my economic thinking, I was a liberal, uh, I, I, in, a, in a neoliberal sense even, uh, before I realized uh, how much you need the, the government and you need uh, uh, the in intervention of the government in many, many places.
0: And when did that start to become clearer for you?
1: Well, when I started to work in the, uh, in the staff of the uh, German Council of Economic Advisors, that was the high time of what was called supply-side policies. Everybody, what year? That was 75. Uh, 75, everybody started to think about supply-side theory, supply-side policy, and the German Council of Economic Advisors was clearly was a leader in that thinking. And Jack, uh, for people
0: that don't know, give a quick explanation what that means.
1: Well, they uh, change to supply side means exactly the opposite of Keynesianism, which means uh, you're not uh, intervening on the on the demand side of an economy. You don't care about demand, but
0: you say it means you don't care about wages. You don't
1: care about wages. You don't care about any kind of demand. But what you care about is uh, the profits for for companies, that the companies get proper profits, that the taxes are low and wages are low and all this. And then uh, if you if you so to say shift uh, income towards uh, the rich uh, people or towards uh, companies, then you would get more investment, and you would get uh, automatic uh, supply increase, and the supply increase would create demand, and then the whole system would be stable again. And this so,
0: became associated as Reaganomics. Uh, this or later was then called right
1: uh, Reaganomics Thatcherism. But it was a, a merger of uh, the German approach to. English and the uh, American approach that dominated
0: in the 80s. Indeed. And did you more or less buy into this at that time?
1: No, no, not at all. Uh, I would say that I was very critical because I, I followed very closely all these discussions and I saw how much ideology is in these discussions. They were not uh, intellectually, they were not honest. Uh, this was my first feeling when I when I distanced myself from that. I said, this, this cannot be true. They're, they're, they're changing. They're moving the facts, they're, they're changing the facts in a way uh, that uh, fits their uh, ideas and all under the, under the umbrella of uh, uh, the general ideology, which was uh, strengthened by monetarism. So the idea that uh, you should have independent central bank and the central bank should steer the money supply, again a supply side concept and the money supply would hold inflation down all this uh, these nice ideas were merged into uh, this whole concept of neoliberalism. And uh, my feeling from the very beginning is that this is not fair. This is not uh, uh, an honest intellectual approach. So I started uh, to study more uh, the uh, Keynesian Keynesian ideas. And uh, then I realized, no, it cannot work like this.
0: And why do you think these ideas became dominant? And what changed? Uh, You talked about this moment after World War II that was kind of desperate. And so you know, the elites around the world bought into this, this Bretton Woods idea. Um, mm. What changed?
1: I think the main thing were the oil price explosion, what is called the oil price explosion in the mid of the 70s and the end of the 70s, where we had uh, hikes in inflation uh, all around the world, in the industrialized world, in the United States, in Europe, everywhere. Inflation went up because wages were on the rise. Uh, there was full employment everywhere. So the unions were strong about pushing for high wages, but inflation and also
0: went up because oil prices. Yeah, yeah. Were the but roof.
1: but in the second round was, and this is really what economists call a second round effect. And they were right at that point of time that wages were creating a second round effect for inflation, and this was the lasting effect on inflation. And then monetary policy stepped in, and monetary policy harshly uh, broke, so to say, this uh, circle of rising wages and rising uh, rising inflation. Uh, and uh, we, By raising interest rates through the roof. Raising interest rates through the roof, and then by creating unemployment. This was the time when unemployment, so to say, entered the Western world. Uh, this was the first time, and this, this uh, conflict between uh, inflation and unemployment was uh, taken by by the monetarists, by the neoclassical economists, but to say you see Keynesianism is wrong because Keynesianism always produces inflation. In the end, they produce inflation. It was good with uh, high employment for a time, but then it overshoots. So we need uh, more objective uh, steering of monetary policy. We do not. Uh, we should not allow these uh, bouts of inflation, and we should stop it early on. And this can only be done by an independent central bank. And then. So monetarism took, took over, and uh, academically they, they were uh, also quite successful in convincing, so to say, uh, most economists that uh, only a neoclassical theory, a neoliberal theory, uh, would be uh, a scientific uh, approach to economics. Well, I, what,
0: weren't they right in terms of the, the levels of inflation? Uh, weren't they right? No, no, for
1: the moment they were right. For a moment it was right. Uh, if you take Europe or Germany, uh, or the United States, it was right at that moment of time, it was not correct and was not reasonable to increase wages uh, in in response to the inf- higher inflation uh, that came from uh, oil price explosion. This is, so to say, a supply side effect. There's really a supply side effect where inflation rises and this cannot be taken uh, from the companies at, at home because we have to give that uh, income, so to say, to the producers of oil. We have to, to send it over to Saudi Arabia uh, so it was no longer there. And then to fight for something that is no longer there is not very reasonable. That leads to inflation. But that was only the first round. In the second round, the second oil price explosion, wage increases were much lower, much lower. But nevertheless, monetary policy. Uh, uh, but the wage, wages interest. had to
0: go up to keep up with the r- inflation from the oil prices. Yeah, but
1: uh, that's, that's a very open question. There, I'm not uh, uh, of that opinion, because what happens, if what you should get always, you should have wages following, so to say, a normal inflation rate. But if the inflation rate for external reasons that you cannot influence, something like the oil price hike, uh, uh, increase, then the, the internal fight doesn't make sense. Because it's gone. This income is gone. The inflation, the higher rate of inflation shows that income is gone elsewhere. But, but the question who sh- who should pay the consequences of that? Who should pay, that? yeah. but, but if, you so try, if you have workers' yeah, wages, but if workers, should pay that. But yeah, then, no, in no, theory, but, you could yeah, if, have taken this, it out of the pockets well, of the as rich. As long as we are the market economy, as, the, as long as they try to get it, uh, the inflation rate will rise because the employers always have... This instrument at hand to increase prices. That and that's unavoidable. There was
0: an attempted at wage and price controls in places like Canada. It didn't work. There was talk. No, the
1: Well, there I'm not a fan of uh, price and wage controls. I, in, in principle, uh, we should have guidelines. We have we should have strong guidelines. We maybe come to that a bit later. We have should have strong guidelines for wages uh, uh, to rise in a reasonable way. But it should not include such uh, inflationary effects that come from the supply side uh, effect, like oil or commodities price rise, because, uh, as I said, this uh, inc- uh, this creates a struggle about income that is no longer there. And did, did, it, did it ever,
0: I mean, in, in your thinking about this, and, and, and as you're developing as an economist, did you ever think about that maybe both sides don't work, one side leads to inflation, the other side leads to recession and even deflation, that, like, neither of these strategies Yeah,
1: yeah, work. no, no. What you need is coordination. What you need is, exactly at that moment of time, you need coordination. Uh, between monetary policy and and the wage development. So you need uh, concerted action or whatever you call a uh, roundtable where all the people, the participants come together and say, so what, what can be reasonably distributed? So you want uh, a reasonable,
0: is, rational capitalism?
1: We, we, we Well, at least we have to try to do it. Uh, and And we got it for some time, so we have to try to get it again, which is... Uh, Not uh, not very simple in this world of uh, plutocracy that we are entering, Uh, but uh, but this is uh, a rational way to do it at
0: least. Okay, we're going to continue this discussion in our series of interviews. So please join us on Reality Asserts Itself with Heiner Flasbeck on the Real News Network.